Hi everyone, this is episode five of season five and we're on our last day of the podcast for our mental health awareness week. And I have Vanessa Salos with me from Legal and General and Monica Garcia from Monica Garcia Consulting with me. Hi both of you. Hi. Hi Catherine, hi Vanessa. Hi. Well today, I say one day four and we are going to be focusing upon mental health and what happens when it comes to making a claim on insurance and kind of like all the mental health touch points at that point and this is the Practical Protection Podcast. How are you both doing then? Let's start off with the nice little just how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. It's been a busy January already, as you would expect in the insurance world. Uh, but yeah, feeling good both physically and psychologically at the moment. So it's a great start to the year. Fantastic. Same here, thank you. Yeah, it's just end of January. So it's that feel again that, oh my gosh, it's 2022 already. And, you know, one month is already gone. So yeah, feeling good, but scary. It's going fast. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. I have to say I'm very, very grateful it's the end of January because I've just had a month of role plays and appraisals and everything else. My calendar has just been meetings, meetings, meetings. So I've just said to myself, just have a bit of a chill out at the end of at the end of January. That'd be nice. Just <laughs> the next day or so, just maybe maybe the weekend. I'll just have a little bit of moments where I just kind of let myself collapse a little bit, which will be very, very nice. But let's get straight into things because I know that everybody's going to want to hear from your points of view, especially after everything we've been listening to this week. So if I start with you, Vanessa. Obviously, you have a medical background as well as a lot of experience of insurance and specifically the claims journey. So how entwined is mental health with claims? So the top three causes of income protection claims, both group and retail or, or individual claims, is essentially musculoskeletal, cancer and mental health. No particular order, but they actually make up over 70 percent of income protection claims. Then if you actually look at any underlying psychological consequences, so for any physical condition, cancer being one, but also chronic pain, chronic fatigue is another example, um, and chronic pain conditions, there is often a psychological or mental health underlying aspect to those claims as well. So it is absolutely fundamental and key. And within legal in general, we actually have it as a foundation of our well-being that actually we all have mental health it impacts us all in different ways and actually we just need to look after ourselves uh, from that perspective as well but that's why we actually implemented our early intervention and proactive claims management approach is very much founded around the mental well-being of everybody I think that's brilliant and it's, it's so important. I mean, the things that sort of like stand out for me for that as well as the long-term things was like long COVID, obviously so many yeah. of us are hearing about that now, you know, people who, people I've been speaking to, you know, spent their life without any health condition at all and suddenly they've got something and they're no longer, you know, this person who's able to go off and do marathons or triathlons and things like that. So, so everything that they had kind of like as their support structure in some ways to not have a mental health con- you know, sort of like a condition is suddenly gone and then they've got this as well and it's, it's intense. I mean, it is intense. I absolutely agree, Catherine. You know, essentially, we've always isolated mental health or physical conditions, but actually they are interchangeable. They are part of what we actually are as human beings and help us to become whole and to help us actually thrive within the workplace. 
we actually have to acknowledge that we've all got that mental health. We've all got the propensity to have mental illness or physical illness at any given point in time. And I think you're right with long COVID and the pandemic we've been going through. It's really highlighted that and brought it to the forefront. Absolutely. I think something that stood out for me as well all the time, and it's something I've been saying for a while now is the fact that you, you were just saying that, you know, we all have mental health. It's a case of well, we do, you know, it's like being anxious is a very natural, normal response to certain yeah. situations. There are times where, and I obviously certainly am one of these people, I've not been shy about my own mental health, my anxiety. There are times that my anxiety kicks in when it, in a sense, it sh- I'm going to say shouldn't do. And I know you two can see me doing bunny ears to say shouldn't do, and no one else can see that. But, you know, there are times that it kicks in my fight and, and flight sort of like goes into yeah. overdrive. And, and for me, it probably happens as the same places it shouldn't do, but it's, it's also normal. It's like it's going for your driving exam. It's, it's going on that first date with somebody. The anxiety is quite, it, it's there for, for us all. It's just, is it manageable in some ways? Maybe? Exactly. I mean, at the end of the day, it's just a natural, normal stress reaction to certain amounts of pressure. Stress in itself isn't an illness. It's not a clinical illness. It's, and pressure is a normal reaction to those types of situations that we find ourselves in. It's life. I thought, you know, and I absolutely agree, you know, um, I've had significant mental um, illness issues within my close family for a number of years. My husband's bipolar. So, you know, essentially it's normal. We need to actually ensure that it is uh, understood as normal within each of our working lives. Monica, um, many insurers now offer mental health services and you know support services, especially at the times of claim and, and even not necessarily just at times of claim, just generally available. So what kind of mental health support do people potentially need when they are in this kind of situation where they are needing a claim? Yeah, so I think what we, what we need to bear in mind is that within the income protection industry, we're talking specifically about the working population, right? So these are individuals who, for any reason, they're perhaps struggling at work to a point that, you know, they become absent. So the most uh, common reasons really are related to, as Vanessa mentioned, you know, stress, work stress, um, reactive types of depression and anxiety. Now, these conditions uh, luckily have a good prognosis, you know, based on evidence and, um, you know, people are likely to get well if they receive treatment. Now, here is the bat, and you can see my, you know, my um, inverted commas there. But um, I think what we struggle with is the fact that, you know, individuals face a postcode lottery via the NHS. And um, it may be that some claimants are waiting for a long, long period of time. And what it means is that the condition perhaps becomes more severe in terms of symptoms. And then um, other psychosocial changes occur as well for these individuals at home, you know, things get more complicated. So, I mean, really in a succinct answer to your question, the support can vary, you know, the, the type of counseling, the type of specific therapy intervention. But I think what is most important is that it has to be tailored to in the specific individual, to the specific circumstances at the time. Uh, and so, and that might be very, very different. You know, it may be that you have um, developed a mental health condition as a result of bereavement, for example. You know, we've seen that um, during 2020, many people not being able to say goodbye to their loved ones, you know, that's been really hard but of course you know there are many other factors as well playing um, um, at the same time and and you know that might mean that some people do actually develop a mental health condition and others don't um, the other thing as well to bear in mind within our industry is is the fact that there are many 
IP products available out there. And that makes a difference in terms of the type of interventions that may be suitable and that are available for people. So in the case of group income protection, you know, you have more, as Vanessa mentioned, more comprehensive um, tools because you are engaging with employer schemes and, you know, you have the individuals uh, having access to early intervention um, resources within the waiting period um, in the majority of cases, which is fantastic because the early you get the, the more chances you have of, um, you know, helping that individual to overcome those symptoms, manage those symptoms and um, help them to get back to work. On the individual income protection side of things, you might have products with um, the fair periods of 12 months, for example. So the insurer might not hear about the sickness absence until the person has been at work for a year. So things are a lot more complex in that scenario. And I think things are changing in the industry as well in terms of what type of support can be available for those um, claimants, really. But certainly, I think that's a great opportunity for the industry yeah. from an education yeah. perspective, because yeah. within legal in general, we treat all income protection claimants exactly the same. It's almost irrelevant how the product is distributed. It all sits under my remit and we provide the same vocational rehabilitation, early intervention and support for yeah. individuals suffering from mental health. Um, irrespective as to whether it's a retail or an individual product or a group product. So I see that as a really fantastic opportunity for us to educate people, to remind them about the products that they've purchased. Yeah. Because again, that's often what happens on an individual um, product. I agree with you, Monica, is that essentially individuals forget that they've even got the product sometimes. They bought yeah. it a number of years ago, yeah. sometimes associated with the mortgage, and they just don't even know they've got it until they really need it. Yeah. And so we should be educating them to remind them of all the fantastic benefits that we can actually provide to help them remain in good work. Yeah. And I think as, as Vanessa mentions as well, um, you know, the role of vocational rehabilitation is key and it's something that the industry really has moved forward at an incredibly fast pace, you know, in the last five six years or so. And, and that's important because, you know, if you don't have IP cover, for example, you might be waiting on the NHS, um, you know, for counseling or psychotherapy or CBT treatment. You might have PMI access insurance, but that doesn't guarantee that you are actually going to get um, the specific return to work support you're going to need. So it can be that you are able now to manage your depression, your anxiety symptoms, but you are actually petrified about returning to the workplace, you know, you, you have been deconditioned, you're scared. And um, it can be that your vocational rehabilitation consultant helps you in that transition, you know, to successfully and safely go back to the to the workplace. And working with employers as well, that's maybe something we can talk about in, in another podcast, you know, the role of employers, you know, who have to support employees back to work as well. Absolutely. And I think what was interesting as well, something that we just touched upon then as well, is I think kind of like the mental health and knock-on effect that it can have from other areas as well. So not even just income protection, if we think about life insurance, we think about critical health, so life insurance, you've got the family facing bereavement, or you potentially have someone who's who knows that they're facing they're going to be passing in the next 12 months if they've got a terminal illness. You know, there's so much mental health there with the critical illness. You might have somebody 
in a sense, grieving their health that, that they now have, have lost if they've been in good health. But I think as well, something that kind of pops into my mind is that we kind of probably think of this as like either that someone's had mental health and then, you know, this is kind of what's resulting in the claim or maybe there's been something quite significant like cancer where we kind of automatically think, oh, yeah, you know, there's going to need to be probably some mental health support there. But I was just thinking about what happens if you've got someone, I've just gone off to back to the triathlon person I was mentioning. It was if you've got someone there who's got, a, you know, they've broken their leg and they're suddenly facing that they don't have, they're not going to be, and it's, it's been, a, let's say it's been a not nice break and, you know, they're not going to be able to do what they did before. And that was kind of their stress relief, you know, and, and everything was about, they, they identified as this running man in a sense. And I imagine, you know, some people with a broken leg, you'd, you'd be a case of, well, they maybe don't need mental health support. Not assuming that, but, you know, that, that they maybe wouldn't do some people, but then there could be others that they really need it. So I imagine it's very complex trying to establish all yeah. of that kind of vision of what that individual person needs. Exactly. And that's where I referred to the underlying psychological overlay previously, is that absolutely, and it is what we actually utilise is we've got our own vocational clinical specialist as, as Monica has actually alluded to so we will actually carry out what we call a triage interview with every individual to actually ascertain what their needs are part of that is very much going through some psychometric testing as well these are all clinicians we've got a multidisciplinary team and that is the best approach that's the approach as recommended by NICE it's also the same approach as we're using for the long COVID support program programs and indeed the NHS and NICE have made those recommendations in exactly the same way so we'll use clinicians occupational health advisors occupational health physicians OTs physiotherapists and nurses with varying degrees of um, experience and expertise in mental health cancer musculoskeletal all the different disciplines so that we can actually carry out an initial in-depth assessment of that individual to actually identify what their complex needs are and then actually identify the right care pathway what support do they need using that stepped care approach yeah I think I agree with, with Vanessa. And I think the important thing is that what I've seen in the industry, you know, in the last few years is that they have really adopted this biopsychosocial model of health approach. Yeah. So, you know, we see in healthcare settings that you need to understand the process of health and illness from a biological, psychological, and social perspective. So I think adopting a holistic approach of the assessment of that particular case will enable you, you know, to understand what is it that is, you know, um, preventing that uh, person, you know, from recovering and from returning to work. So it can be a broken leg, it can be a broken arm it can be anything but we must not undermine you know the mental health aspects and, and how that person is coping or not coping really absolutely uh, so Vanessa so something else that I sort of like wanted to quickly touch upon before we move on yes. to the next bits was obviously a lot of insurers now do what's known as the value-added support services so this is where a claim isn't necessarily being made it's something that people can access throughout the time of the policy and we'll have people listening who you know, sort of know about this don't know about it and obviously a lot of them do include mental health support services in there but I'm just wondering if you could be sort of like help us sorry and the listeners to understand sort of like do those, there are times, I think, isn't there, where the, sort of those mental health support services, I think they're sort of like, they're there sort of like as an initial kind of support, but then there does come a point where it would maybe be that somebody does need to probably go speak to maybe a GP or, or somebody else, yeah. maybe a charity or something. So how does that kind of work? 
Absolutely. So, you know, under the step, under the NICE guidelines, under the stepped care approach, there are actually five different steps. So you've got the very early stages, step one and two, whereby individuals are just beginning to struggle. They're feeling unhappy. And that's where you might use your mindfulness app or some other tools. And there are thousands of thousands of apps out there and available to individuals. Um, and then you come into where you might need um, an EAP, an employee assistance program, or access to some of the counselling support. And then finally, onto the psychological interventions, such as CBT that uh, Monica has already alluded to, cognitive behavioural therapy. You've got other forms of talking therapies, and they are used often in conjunction with a medication but sometimes on their own because nice recommendations is initially for just that to be used on in the first instance now of course there are some severe um, cases whereby those types of medical um, sorry talking therapies aren't appropriate until an individual is clearly stabilized so for instance if an individual um, is really struggling has suicide um, suicidal thoughts, then they should be talking to a specialist charity or primarily their GP. That's really important. And I can't emphasize that enough that, you know, we want to stop suicide. It's tragic. It's absolutely tragic. And what we want to do is get people with the right support in the first instance. So talk to your GP, talk to your friends and colleagues. If you're in the workplace, reach out to mental health first aiders. Um, so there's plenty of charities such as Mind, Rethink Mental Health, um, Mind Canyon. There's so many charities out there that essentially people can access in the first instance to talk to somebody. Um, insurers aren't in the NHS and we're not yeah. PMI providers under the health benefits. Um, so we can't actually um, put in place medication or recommend medication. We can provide all the other support services, but it is really important individuals access their primary carer in the first instance. Absolutely. Because I was going to say, I obviously I speak to a lot of people that yeah. are living with mental health. And one of the things I'll be saying to me is, oh, we're going to go to this insurer. They offer these things as extras. And then I have to obviously be careful as well, because it's a case yeah. of it might be that they have a mental health you know, condition that I'm speaking to them about where actually maybe the mental health support line through the, the insurer through that, that extra support service isn't going to be necessarily the best route. Or to yeah. at least make them aware to say, look, you can access this, but I'm not completely sure how much they're going to be able to do because obviously you've got this support here. Obviously you've been speaking to your GP. Hopefully, mm -hmm. obviously most of the time it is somebody who has spoken to their GP. Um, so I, th I think that's good, you know, rather than, so I'm sorry, thinking from an advisor point of view, it's really important yeah. to say advisors don't think, oh, this person's got a mental health condition. Oh, there's mental health support here. I'll just signpost them there and actually go, well, actually that might be an okay route, but depending upon the situation, it may be that, you know, there is other things that we need to do as well. Because yeah. the last thing we want to do is someone to come to us for help, for us yeah. to say, we're going to help you. And by the way, there's this extra support here for them to then go to that. And then it's not right for them. Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. You know, within the UK, we have an amazing primary care system. I know it's been struggling phenomenally throughout the, the pandemic, but ultimately the first point of contact should always be an individual's GP. Um, or the, the local mental health services for an individual. And the GP will then help to signpost that individual if they need further psychiatric input from a consultant yeah. psychiatrist um, via secondary care, via the NHS, or, or if an individual has PMI 
Yeah, and I think, Catherine, what you'll also find is that many income protection claimants find that their insurer, for example, will liaise with the GP yeah. and will say, you know, we, we have finished our vocational rehab course or our CBT course, and, uh, you know, we're sort of returning the care back to you because it may be that in some conditions they will require long-term um, care. And as you say, it can be medication or access to psychotherapy. So it is important that that um, care is monitored by the the GP as, as Vanessa mentions. Yeah and that's a really great point Monica because even if we are providing the CBT or, or the psychological intervention because often it's quicker to get that by your insurer than it is via the, the postcode lottery that you referred to earlier. Um, essentially we will always be liaising with the GP as the primary carer you know our case managers both from a claims perspective but also from a vocational rehabilitation perspective are linking in with the GP and if there's a consultant psychiatrist or psychologist involved they'll be sharing evidence of course with the individual's consent because we yeah. make sure we get the full informed consent from outset and we ensure that they're aware that we're going to be sharing this information because it's in their best interest that we've got a fully holistic process for them so mm -hmm. that everybody has the same focus to help them get better yeah absolutely and monica i think you know obviously we said before you know that mental health accounts for so much of the income protection claims in the uk and you know it isn't something to think of as you know it's, it, it's unusual for people to be having mental health you know difficulties let's say or maybe flare-ups of some sort you know it can happen to anybody um you know Alan has been very open recently how last year you know he he's Alan is so laid back he's complete opposite of me incredibly laid back he's one of those people though that every now and then he'll stop like he'll build up lots of stuff and suddenly go Burr. but he's usually fine he does that thing and then he goes back to normal and resets and um and I just talk constantly about everything that's kind of going on in my head and um and last March, April time, so you know, a good year into the to lockdown, he suddenly really, really struggled. You know, he's 37. He's never had anything mental health-wise. Um, you know, he's obviously he's been well, he's seen me obviously for many years with my mental health. And, you know, it's always been very distinct. You know, he's kind of like so different, like in the case of you know, I'll see something in my mental health will flare up, and he's just kind of like, yeah, well, you know, not mm -hmm. not yeah, whatever to me. Um, but you yeah. know, so like if it was him facing yeah. that, it just completely glides over him. And all of a sudden, everything was just suddenly there and on top, and he just couldn't see a way out. You know, it's kind of like that whole thing of you trying to like swim through the darkness kind of thing, and he just couldn't get out of it. And I think what's really important, and obviously we've had so many people talk about the mental health in the last few years, especially in our industry. And I think we get seeing it across society as well to just try and say to each other, this is okay. You know, it's not a shameful thing. Yeah. And Monica, I was just wondering how, how important is it that people really take their mental health seriously and engage with the mental health services that are generally available in society, but also those things that are available through insurers just to try and, I don't know, keep themselves okay. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. I think, I mean, one of the, if I could say a positive thing out of this, this whole pandemic scenario is that we've all seen that we can be vulnerable. You know, I think somehow we think that, oh, yes, we can go by on a day-to-day -day, day -day basis, but 
actually, you know, things have been tough. I think we've all been affected, you know, by COVID in one way or, or another. Um, but I think particularly during the initial lockdowns and lockdown one, two and three, you know, as they happen, um, from a research and evidence perspective, what's, what's happened is that people were suddenly cut off of usual sources of social and emotional support. Um, and that's a key buffer, actually, of stress. So, you know, it can be that, um, you know, where before lockdowns, you you will go to the pub to see your mates and just talk about things or, or watch a football game. And so things were stopped, you know, so that's on a kind of daily basis. But then, you know, you can start feeling overwhelmed if things are not going well or if you've experienced bereavement within the family so it could be all you know all sorts of things um, that can happen to people but I think what we've seen in the pandemic is that um, vulnerable groups have been particularly affected because access to um, community support rehabilitation services for example were suspended you know so um, that's that's been really really difficult for them and I think for the rest of the population it's been the fact that actually you know for the first time as you say as in the case of Alan you know people are experiencing those symptoms but I think what is important is that we need to be able to recognize those early signs and symptoms and it can be completely different for each individual um so for example if if you like eating suddenly you might not eat at all you know or if or the other way around so it's very difficult to generalize and to say what what symptoms you should look at you know um apart from i, I guess disturbed sleeping and and that sort of thing you know for depression and anxiety but it's a very very individual ac aspect you know you see some people um struggle with um um, um um, back problems, for example, musculoskeletal pain or tummy problems, you know, and they say, what, what's going on, you know, and they, and they don't realize that actually I'm feeling overwhelmed, I'm feeling stressed. Um, something else as well that we're seeing, I mean, uh, that was the first phase, I, I guess, you know, during the pandemic lockdowns, but now that we went back to work is the issue around hybrid work. Um, so I think uh, from an insurance perspective, we're going to see many cases potentially where, you know, people are struggling to deal with this hybrid model, you know, where depending on the occupation, um, you know, dealing with technology fatigue, isolation, because, you know, remote work doesn't work for everyone. So I think a lot of employers are struggling in terms of what support can be available for them, you know, to manage those remote teams. So it's going to be, um, I guess, an opportunity, you know, for the industry as well, you know, particularly from a group income protection side of things. And Vanessa can tell you more, you know, in terms of those early intervention and prevention strategies that can be put in place um, for them. But I think we shouldn't forget, I guess, about the positive things and opportunities. I mean, one of the things I'm, I'm doing now uh, with my work is, and I really enjoy is, is working again directly with uh, claimants, income protection claimants and people with mental health conditions and cases that are classified as complex, you know, people who are of work for a long period of time. And, and I've seen cases where actually remote work wasn't available for them before and it wasn't an option. And now they're able to go back to work, you know, on a remote basis without struggling with travel anxiety and, you know, feeling under pressure to, to be with colleagues that, you know, perhaps they don't want to talk about their mental health symptoms, you know, because I, I think we can park that again for another podcast around the stigma, which, you know, it, things are moving forward, but I think there is still a huge stigma. I see employers really not knowing how to speak to employees as, after a mental health condition, not knowing how to support them in the workplace. No, of course. Um, I was going to say, it's, it is hard. It's really hard as an employer. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously we do, 
we have a lot that's you know available we do a lot you know we obviously what there's so many of us that are there to chat we've got mental health first aiders and you know but again it's that whole thing of you know everybody's individual so it's quite hard to know exactly what to do with everybody and you need to make sure that you have to have that culture I think from the start as well of approachability and you know people that there's there's no stigma there's nothing that's going to say well actually you know if you need to do a four-day week you know then in a sense, wherever possible, then that's fine, you know, yeah. in a sense. And and actually that person probably is going to be so much more productive, so much more and so much happier that, yeah. you know, it's going to work out best for everybody involved. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think an important thing as well to start move us towards, and it's like coming towards the end of the, the session today, because obviously we're talking about obviously mental health for somebody who's a claimant, maybe mental health for somebody who's, you know, there's obviously people who are supporting claimants, you know, in a sense, family members, and obviously as well, they also have their mental health. But I think sometimes what we can potentially forget a bit about, and it is an area that I think about quite a bit, because I often think about my team when they're listening to stories about mental health and how I, obviously, we make sure we've got support structures there for them. But I think, Vanessa, obviously, you'll see it so much in your team with your claims handlers, how much that kind of an emotional situation, how involved it can be in terms of listening to someone's story or potentially if a claim doesn't get paid, I know that doesn't happen yeah. much, but it, it can happen. And yeah. that must be a huge emotional toll for your team. It is. And I'm really pleased you've actually raised that, Catherine, because it's often the forgotten um, when we're talking about mental health. But, you know, it's really important that we safeguard and protect all of our claims handlers. We provide the right support. All of our line managers are trained in counselling as well as coaching to help support their actual teams. And of course, we're very lucky within legal in general, we have our own clinical team. So again, we ensure that there is that um, ability to debrief and talk to colleagues about um, the cases they've actually discussed. And we even do that, you know, virtually. It's been key that we've continued this approach um, through the pandemic. What we've also done, I mean, you know, sadly, we have seen an exponential increase in death claims, so sadly, um, also in income protection. And uh, in the first year, there was a reduction in critical illness claims, but now we're seeing an increase through 2021, sadly. And it's been really important that we've actually provided counselling and support. So what we've done is um, had Samaritan sessions with all of our claims handlers. We've also provided counselling sessions, both individually, but on a group basis to help support them so that they feel that they can actually talk to somebody. It's really important that we actually operate an open, honest, transparent and and trusting working environment. I think that, you know, whatever you're doing, it's so important that we actually provide that environment so people feel free and they're able to talk to colleagues, but talk to their line managers and tell us when they're struggling. We've also carried out lots of surveys um, and it's a how you do in surveys what we've been doing within um, our own claims team and it's just done on a monthly basis and they can give a thumbs up or a thumbs down Mm. or a smile or a frown and it's just um, to give us an indication so that we can then initiate that conversation if they don't want to initiate it then myself or one of the team managers um, or the senior managers within the area can actually then initiate that conversation and say, 
how are you? I've also been doing coffee and chats every month. I've had coffee and chats with all of my people on an individual basis and in groups um, just to uh, give them the opportunity to talk about it's an open, free um, agenda. It can be work or it can be home or it can be anything that they want to talk about. Um, so it's really important that we've actually provided all of that support to the claims handlers because ultimately they are dealing with very vulnerable individuals mm. in their hour of need uh, yeah. and they can only deliver the service that our customers deserve if they are fully supported. Absolutely and I think claims handlers are actually the face of insurers you know they are that first part of contact you know in terms of um, you know their claim but I've seen cases where you know, claims handlers have been in tears, you know, after the assessment of a claim, because some stories are absolutely heartbreaking and we're all human beings, you know, so I'm, I'm very uh, pleased to hear, Vanessa, that, that you have, you know, those mechanisms in place to support your claim handlers. And I should hope that, you know, all insurers will have similar um, approaches, really. I would think so as well. But I think it's, mm-hmm. it's very much a point. I think claims handlers are very much, I imagine, uh, an empathetic type person yeah, so obviously yeah. usually yeah. in that role so that is something that is, is going to absorb into them those stories yeah. and then it's going to feed into probably the feelings of well, what's that going to mean to that family member and that family member and and it's so much the process but I think you know from what you were saying Vanessa as well it's, it's like I mean we have like obviously similar things in place for our teams again we hear obviously things that have happened to people that aren't particularly easy yeah. to hear and um you know and it's, it's a number of different things i've spoken about different places we've got like certain sos systems if we're really worried about people you know whether or not that's you know an employee needs to notify us of something for, about themselves or about you know potentially somebody we're speaking to but i do think and it was just something you said then i, I don't think there's much that can really be a cup and a biscuit as well mm-hmm. just you know yeah. just a, a nice gentle yeah. hand on the shoulder I know we're COVID so we're not all together yet but you know before <laughs> COVID times you know it'd be a case of you'd maybe hear someone on the phone and you'd yeah. come up and you just yeah. tap them on the shoulder very lightly touch them on the shoulder and just be like do the symbol for cuppa to them and yeah. then it would just be 10-15 minutes you know away from everybody maybe longer you know there was times you know that we actually said to somebody you know at times like, I just clock off for the day just yeah. go just process and obviously, as, as long as they were happy with that, if they needed to stay to kind of not face things in a sense, then, you know, that's also, you, you do what each person needs. But yeah, the power of a cuppa and a chat is a, is a yeah. big thing. And I agree, you know, we used to do that, as, as you say, when you're actually in the environment, in an office environment, you can hear the conversations. You know, we sat, I sat right in amongst all of my people so I could hear and see what was going on. You couldn't do that virtually. So we just had a little symbol or something that they needed a quick cuppa or a quick chat. Um, outside of the formality as well just that they felt that they could contact somebody because the worst thing in the world is for them to feel isolated as well having dealt with a really tragic um, claim and having to speak to to the bereaved but also to individuals that are struggling with their own mental health or or any form of claim Yeah. yeah Absolutely. I think it's one of those things. It's a lesson, I think, for probably everybody. It doesn't don't need to be a claims handler. You don't need to be advised or anybody, anybody in any organisation. You know, if we need, you know, if you need to be able to reach out and get support, then really, you know, all organisations should have something there, really, just to just give everybody a little bit of an outlet if need be. Yeah, completely agree. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for, for joining me. It's been lovely to have you on. 
Uh, this is the last of the Mental Health Awareness Week podcast, and tomorrow we're going to have a webinar hosted by John Brazier at Cover, where um, everybody can join in and quiz an advisor, an underwriter and an actuary about mental health and um, put forward all those questions that you want to ask us that uh, we maybe don't always get a chance to ask. Um, if anybody would like a reminder of the next episode, please do drop a message on social media or visit the website practical-protection.co.uk. And as always, please don't forget that if you've listened to this as part of your work, you can claim a CPD certificate on the website too, thanks to our sponsors, Octo members. So thank you, Monica, and thank you, Vanessa. You're very welcome. And thank you, Catherine, as well. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine, and thank you, Vanessa, as well. Good to see you.